All right, everyone. Good morning. We will be yeah, jumping in this week to session two. Hopefully you got a handout on your way in. Um, we're going to talk this morning about God and the hope of parenting. Last week we talked about scripture as the paradigm of parenting as we think about yeah, training children um, in the way of the Lord. It begins with knowing what scripture teaches about God, about who we are as moms, as dads, what the purposes of families are in this world. And then this week we'll turn to the real hope of our parenting, and that is God himself. So let's go to him in prayer as we jump in. Well, Father, we are grateful for your love and your mercy that is so lavish in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you're a father who hears our prayer. You're a father who purposes things before the foundation of the world. God, who decides to show kindness toward your people, to display the glory of your grace and the salvation of your people. And it's our prayer that those promises and purposes would apply to every one of our children, not because of our great works and skills, but because of your great mercy. And so we pray that you would help us even this morning to, to know the right balance between your power and your promises and, and our efforts and how those work together uh, according to your will. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if we paid attention to the content of last week and what the Lord was really calling us to uh, in Exodus and Deuteronomy to help our children know the Lord and trust the Lord and love the Lord and serve the Lord and remember the Lord, then we should have felt a great, even overwhelming sense of responsibility, almost sort of the impossible task that we have in front of us to help our kids accomplish all those things. And that's why we wanted to follow up this week with a session on just what is the real hope? Not so much what's the goal or the objective, but what's the source and the basis for our hope in parenting? What are we really supposed to be resting on as the years go on? Because when our children are infants, and some of you have infants, you can pick them up, take them where we want them to go, we can lay them in a crib, and they can't leave, usually. They can scream and cry, uh, but they're confined. You know, if they try to climb a fence to pet a crocodile at the zoo, you know, usually able to hopefully notice and grab them by the hand and redirect them. When they go bounding toward a street, we are able to, again, physically restrain. And so there's this, a lot, of, a lot of exhaustion in all those years, a lot of fatigue in those years of parenting, but there's also this sense of control. There's just parts of it we feel like that we have in our hands. But then as our children age and develop, I think that sense of control starts to unravel as what's on the inside of our kids starts to be expressed to the outside as they learn to speak, as we learn to pay attention to their spiritual condition, and not just their physical condition. We see their words, their facial expressions, their interactions. We observe their thoughts through what they say and do, their emotions, their view of God, their way of relating to God, to us, to everyone else. We start seeing all that, and I think the stakes start to get a lot higher. And 
Ruth and I have talked about this a lot, that of our kids have you know, entered into teenage years and then even heading out of the home, going to college, just how much of our sense of control starts to fall apart and how much the stakes seem so much higher. This isn't just about, okay, how do we help our kids not spill milk all over the floor? Or how do we help them tie their shoes? But how are they going to be reconciled to God? How are they going to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? How is their heart going to be given over to the Lord? How are they going to trust and believe and love him with all their heart? Start realizing, oh wait, those are bigger stakes. Not in our hands. So our ability to reach the real passions and loyalties of their heart you know, seems to diminish. Like, okay, this is daunting. So again, if we take the content of session one last week seriously, then we should feel a little bit overwhelmed with what God has called us to, what he's called us to be, the task of helping our children, again, trust the Lord and love the Lord and remember the Lord and serve the Lord demands far greater wisdom and power and patience than any of us really have in our possession. Though scripture is clear, you know, we're prone to muddy the water, just our own weaknesses, our own foolishness, our own inadequacies, our own sinfulness as parents, right? That hopefully we're all starting to realize, okay, if their life depends on me, they're in trouble. If their eternity depends on me, then we're all in trouble. Because we're prone to weakness, prone to quit. And so we're going to take this time today then to talk about, okay, who is the hope for our kids? Who is the hope of our parenting? There's a lot of things we could talk about here, but what I'd love to do is just focus on a few big areas where God is the hope of our parenting. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians 1. That's where we'll start. Ephesians 1. We'll look at first just this truth of the sovereign grace of God. That's sort of the first pillar, the first cornerstone, if you will, of the hope of our parenting is the sovereign grace of God. Or in a way, it's just a way of saying that God is ultimately and completely in control of the outcome of your kid's life. And second to that, he's extremely loving and kind. That's what this section is about that God is ultimately and completely in control of the outcome of your kid's life and that he's really loving and he's really kind. It's just one of those cornerstones that we have to build our house of parenting on. Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." I mean, that's a passage that's just dripping, right, with the sovereignty of God, with the grace of God, with the power of God, the promises of God. And yet notice he doesn't mention parents a single time. That doesn't mean that parents aren't involved. It doesn't mean that God doesn't bring about his purposes through parents. We'll talk a little bit today about that. But what I think is worth noticing first is how this is, it's all about God, that many of the Christians that he's writing to in Ephesus, their parents aren't Christians. They didn't grow up in Christian homes. And yet God accomplished all these things that he's describing in this passage for them and toward them. So just the sovereignty of God. Notice a number of statements the passage is going to make. Verse 3, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He chose to bless us in Christ in heavenly places. I mean, none of us have gone there and stored up stuff. No, that's entirely his work. Verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Just to consider that, that if you're in Christ, if your faith is in him, you're united to Jesus, it's because God the Father chose you before the foundation of the world that you would be in him. Now, he chose to give you to the parents he gave you to. He chose you to use your parents in whatever way he used them to contribute to that process. And yet, the whole reason your parents were effective in any way, if they were effective, if you had Christian parents, if you had parents who shared Christ with you and read the word of God with you, that was all effective because the father chose for it to be. That that's what he chose to use. And so think about that then for your kids. Same process, same truths are going to apply. That yes, we're called to read scripture, to share Christ, to train and discipline our kids. Yet the effectiveness of all that work will be determined by God. And whether or not did he choose our kids to be in Christ before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Again, there's the determining factor, the purpose of his will. Not the purpose of our will. Not what we choose to bring about or make effective. Verse 8, again, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. So he made known to us the mystery of Christ and the church. The mystery of salvation in Jesus according to his purpose. Because he purposed for that to be the case. 
Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. Here it is again, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So notice how we're not meant to miss that point. That each of us came to that place of salvation, came to being adopted as sons and daughters into his family because of the purpose of his will. Because of him working all things in our life according to the counsel of his will. And so what that means is the same is true in the lives of our kids. He has to work all things, including you, according to the counsel of his will for your child or children. That he's the decisive factor. That God the Father of his own free will chose, notice, to bless us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. We didn't move God to do it. Our parents didn't move God to do it. Some of them maybe prayed for the Lord to do it. Others of our parents didn't pray at all. He chose us in Christ before the world ever existed. What that means is whether or not our kids will be in Christ has already been determined by God. Now, we don't get to know that. He doesn't get to pull the curtain back to show us. Rather, we labor and we serve and we pray in faith, trusting that God will use those efforts to bring about the salvation of our kids. And yet, at the same time, it's been determined. And we'll talk about how that's not meant to be discouraging or cause us to disengage. In fact, it's the very reason we should pray. Because if God isn't sovereign, why bother? So some would think, okay, if he's sovereign, why pray? Well, if he isn't sovereign, why pray? If he can't actually do anything. It's actually because it's his will, because it's according to his purpose, because of his sovereign grace. That's why we pray. That motivates our prayer. He decided to share his inheritance with us through union to his son. Again, notice verse, verses 8 or 5, 8, 11, the reference to God's purpose, the purpose of his will, verse 5, his purpose, verse 8, the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, verse 11. So I think there's a few significant sort of parenting implications for us. Now, some of these in your notes are going to be on the second to last page. I just took all the implications for these sections and just dumped them on the last page. But we'll go through some of them just as we, as we go. I think one implication is we need to be prepared as parents to be very unnerved by this doctrine. That is, we have a whole lot less control than we thought. A whole lot less in our hands than we thought. And that can be very unnerving. It can feel very unnerving. And so all, some of us are greater control freaks than others, right? We know who we are. And usually in every, you know, home with dad and mom and set of parents, there's one that's a little bit more of a control freak than another and wants to be a more decisive role in the outcome of our kids than others. And so this can just be very unnerving. But at the same time, another implication is it can be very freeing because it means... Now, it doesn't come down to your ability, your techniques, your strategies, your skills, but rather comes down to God and his sovereign decree. I think a third implication is you're going to be often tempted, maybe, to disengage, to detach 
from the work of parenting because you're like, well, God's already decided it. God's already determined it. But it's like if you were, if you had an opportunity to play in the Super Bowl and you were guaranteed a victory, you're going to win 56 to nothing in the Super Bowl. Would you go, well, I'm not going to play then? I mean, forget that. If it's already decided that we're going to win 56 nothing, I don't want to be involved. Or would you go, would you even be more excited to be involved? Because you're like, okay, I already know the outcome, but there's so much fun in the game. There's so much fun in being our participant. And so sometimes we think, okay, if we don't control the outcome, then that somehow demotivates participation. When, No, actually, when we're guaranteed an outcome, when we know the person who controls the outcome, and he's inviting us to be a part of it. That's why we do evangelism, right? Like when you go share Christ with others, are you in control of whether or not they believe? No, God will decide. Why do we do it then? Because number one, he commands us to. Number two, he thinks it's a privilege to participate in the work that he's doing. I mean, think about all the stuff that we pour ourselves into every day that when life is over, it's, done, it's gone. Like if you garden and plant flowers, why do you plant flowers every year? They're going to die. Why take care of your yard? Why grow vegetables? Why go to work and make money to get clothes and shoes and pay for house? It's all going to burn. Well, because there's something about that God has designed about living life, about enjoying flowers, about enjoying the food, about enjoying the gifts that he gives that is delightful in him. There's a sweetness in it with him. There's an honor in it. There's a glory that he receives in it. Well, how much more the discipleship, evangelism, or parenting? So the fact that God actually is guiding it, it's according to his purpose and will, though it is unnerving, it is freeing, it is tempting to think, well, then what is the point? But when we really think about it the way God thinks about it, he goes, okay, he's invited us to be a part of something that's really spectacular. He's commanded it, but he's also said, hey, you, you get to do this. And this is a gift. It's also humbling because the Lord will use our labor as parents in a manner that pleases him for the good of our kids and the glory of his name. And so we can't take credit for the salvation of our children, though we can rejoice in it, right? We can celebrate it. At the same time, we can't collapse in guilt and shame at the unrepentance of our children, because we know that's also a sovereign work of God in their hearts. We should feel conviction and repentance if we've neglected to share Christ with our kids, if we neglect to minister the word to them, if we neglect to spend time with them, we should feel conviction for that. But not because that's going to determine the outcome of their life, but because we've neglected the very thing that God's called us to and privileged us to be a part of. But notice also in this passage, the grace of God is on display, not just the sovereignty of God, but the grace of God. Notice verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. He's doing all these things in Christ to bring about the praise of the glory of his grace. 
In him, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Verse 12, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ may be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. So the reason that God saves and sanctifies and cares for us in every detail of our lives is grace, not law. It's because he looks down and has mercy on us and of his own free will lavishes grace upon us. And so the praise of his glory in verses 12 and 14 is primarily about the glory of his grace, verse 6. That's what we're going to get to heaven and spend eternity singing about, giving glory to God about, is his grace. That's why we sing about it now, right? Just the marvelous grace, the amazing grace. All the different superlatives that we put around the word grace to try to capture how beautiful and wonderful this truth is. And so our children need redemption from sin and death. That's what they need. Not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's why you don't have to parent kids in America to have hope. Rather, just parent kids with the good news of the gospel is where our hope is. Kids can grow up in any kind of dictatorship, miserable circumstances in whatever country in all the world, and all this can be true for them. God isn't bound by those circumstances. Our children need an inheritance from heaven, not from earth. Our children need forgiveness from God, not an awesome career. And I say all that so that as we sort of provide for our kids an education, as we provide for them physical comforts, as we provide for them financial resources, as we try to sort of launch them into the world to get an education and get a job and build whatever life for themselves. We realize, again, that's all good part of life, but just on the priority list, it's down here. That what we first try to offer our kids is, yeah, the good news of the gospel. It's forgiveness in Christ's name. It's redemption from sin and death. This means our children actually need something that none of us possess or control the grace of God. And we'll look at one of the implications. That means one implication is just prayer. Constant, deep, desperate, regular prayer. Because whether you're looking at your child who's two months old, 10 months old, two years old, five years old, 15 year old, you realize, okay, he or she needs something I don't have. And that's God's grace. And that's why it's tempting to just focus all of our parenting on things we can control, right? Well, here's something I do have, so I'm going to make my parenting about that. I'm going to give them all the things that I am good at. Again, it's not wrong if you're great at sports and you want to teach your kid how to throw a baseball really well. If you're great at writing and you want to teach them how to write or art. Again, those are all good things. It's just realizing what they most need are things that we don't have. And I think we know this, right, that I can't remember the most recent stats, but 
what is it for people who win the lottery in whatever state they're in, tens of millions of dollars, like they're bankrupt within five years or something? I can't remember the, the stats, but it's, we just have this idea that, okay, if, if our kids just get all this material affluence, all this earthly success, that that is success, that that is accomplishment. And yet we look around the world in which we live and we see, okay, that doesn't bear itself out to be true. Worldly success usually leads to worldly destruction for most people. And we don't even need to look around the world to see it. We can just look in the Bible. It's what Ecclesiastes is about, right? It's Solomon basically saying, all right, everybody, I've been to the top of all the highest mountains. Don't bother. There's nothing there. It's empty. And there's a lot of dead bodies on the way up. So he's writing Ecclesiastes just to say, let me save you the trouble. Pleasure, nobody's known more than me. Wealth, nobody's known more than me. Knowledge, nobody's known more than me. Relationships, nobody's known more than me. And it's all vanity. What life is fundamentally about is enjoying God and enjoying the gifts he gives for what they are as mere gifts from God. So how much more do we want to, with our kids, you know, yeah, we want to teach them, train them, equip them in how to live and enjoy this world, and yet never losing focus. That This is not where joy is. So depend upon the Lord for real and lasting fruit in the lives of our children. I and mean, I think we have to feel that, that we depend on him for any kind of lasting fruit, anything that's going to remain. Another implication, explain and talk about and glory in the grace of God through Jesus Christ in your home. We'll talk later, we'll have a whole session on rules and law and discipline and the place of those things. And I think what we have to learn to talk about most often, most deeply, is grace. Because the mean, <clears throat> this means not relying upon law to do what the law can't do, which is bring redemption. What the law can do is show our need of redemption. What the law in our homes helps our kids see is their sinfulness. It helps them see their proneness for rebellion. It helps them see how they have no hope in a righteousness of their own. So the law plays a really important role in their lives as a servant to salvation, as something that will help them see, man, I need someone from the outside to come in and give me a new heart. But we can't expect the law to do what the law can't do. And that's transform them. That's redeem them. Now, only grace can do that. <clears throat> so the sovereign grace of God. Any questions or comments about just that big section? Right, another theme we'll see in this passage in Ephesians 1 is the unfailing promises of God. And I really think the greatest desire for our children, in my opinion, is that the promises of God become yes and amen toward them. And that should be our great desire, right? 
is that all the promises that God makes in Christ, that those would become theirs. And again, that means there's something that they need that we don't have. To open up their eyes to the promises of God in Christ. To soften their hearts, to see their need. To turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. And notice the promise, a few promises there. One, the promise of an inheritance. Verse 11, in him we have an inheritance. Verse 14, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Notice the promise of arrival in glory. Verse 11, having been predestined to be there. Notice the promise of salvation in verse 13. The word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Notice the promise of the Holy Spirit in verse 13. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And so these promises apply to all and to every single person who have been put into Christ, who are born again by the Spirit of God, which means that the Lord must redeem our children for all these promises to apply. This is one reason why we share the gospel with our kids and pray with our kids. But it also means that we don't have to fret and worry and be anxious about it. In other words, we don't have to belabor the point constantly. We don't have to hammer our kids where they say, okay, okay, I trust in Jesus just to get us off their back. In other words, you really can just share comments about Christ and his life, his death, his resurrection. Share comments about their need for a savior to forgive them from their sin their need for redemption and for blood to atone for it, and then just keep living, keep moving, keep praying. You know, Augustine, one of the things that's known about his biography in life is how much his mom worried about him. I mean, he lived a pretty immoral life for those, all those teenage years up into his 20s. And his mother would regularly go to their bishop, to their pastor, to, and just in tears about him, weeping about him, praying every day about him. And in some way, yes, she, she struggled to trust in, okay, a God who can redeem her son. But at the same time, she realized only God can redeem her son. And so that's why she was so constant in prayer. That's one of the, again, implications. And if our children have been predestined to repent and believe the gospel, then we want to be a part of that process. If our kids have not been predestined, then we're not going to know that to the end. And I find that's one of the hardest, most weighty things you can possibly carry as a parent. Is the idea, okay, what if they're not in him? What if they're not chosen? What a grief that is. And I've sat with parents who their 25-year-old, 30-year-old, 35-year-old sons or daughters have died, and they know that I don't think they were a Christian. And how, just how do you carry that? How do you reconcile that? And this is one of the reasons why it's so important. I think as parents, we invest ourselves in these truths and in these promises and most importantly in the God who speaks to us in these ways to the God who governs all these things because the only hope we'll ever find is in the character of this God the worth of God 
the worth of Jesus, the glory of Christ. We have to learn to love him even more than our own kids. We have to learn to desire and relish in his glory more even than the salvation of our children. And that can sound impossible. And what it doesn't mean is we just, okay, prepare for the worst with our kids and somehow just live life pessimistically. Oh, well, he may not save them. And so, no, instead it's get so acquainted with this God, learn to walk so faithfully with this God, be so enamored with his kindness, his grace, his mercy, his beauty, his power, his holiness, that no matter what happens to our children, we're able to tear our clothes, as Job did, and bow down and worship. He gives, he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But I found no other way to deal with that possibility. I found no other way to really comfort grieving parents who've buried a child that they know rejected Christ. Because that, to me, it's the hardest funeral to sit at. It's the greatest grief to possibly carry. And there'll be temptation in the flesh, okay, to be angry at God, to be bitter toward God, to think this was unfair of God. Or number two, to heap it on yourself, there's, I could have done more. I could have prevented, if only I had, if only I had, if only I had. And yet there's no hope, no healing, no restoration at the end of those roads. The only place where comfort is found, and we'll get to this in the last point, is in the fact that God is good and he does good, is that God is holy and worthy, and that ultimately he's worth it and better. And so a few parenting implications that, number one, we should try not to be obsessed with earthly inheritance and helping our children acquire it, but with heavenly inheritance and helping our children acquire it. Even with young children, we start focusing our hearts, their hearts on that. It's not okay. What kinds of social and financial advantages am I going to give to them? But no, what kind of spiritual blessings am I going to point them to? I think secondly, rather than worrying about our crumbling culture or fretting about the demise of our nation, I hear Christians just do that a lot, like, what about our kids, our grandkids, our, and with a lot of passion, and, and again, there's a place to go, okay, we'd love for next, our next generations to know freedom to follow Christ, to, but yet we have to be 10 times more passionate about heart transformation, not that they would grow up in a country that's nice to them or likes them or appreciates them. Because then you have to think about what's the context that Paul's writing this in? Who is he writing to in Ephesus, these Christians, in Colossae, in Rome? They're dying for their faith. They're being imprisoned for it. They're suffering for it, they're being persecuted. And so clearly a society that our kids can grow up and live in that's comfortable is not high on God's priority list. 
And so this is one area where just, yeah, the unfailing promises of God is meant to sort of fortify our parenting so that we don't fret over the unraveling of a culture. That we don't get anxious and nervous about it. And we don't sort of pass that on to their kids as if they're not going to be able to function without democracy. Or they're not going to be able to live a life full of joy and peace and comfort without sort of social ease or wealth. When everything about the Bible teaches the opposite, is that true faith in Christ that's growing and being sanctified is just immune to the crumbling of all those circumstances. You feel it, you know it, but hopefully we're training and equipping our kids to see, okay, there's, there's sort of a different kingdom you're living for. There's another plane that God is wanting you to walk on and operate on, and following Jesus means you lose stuff. It means you get persecuted for stuff. And it also means it's really good for you and good for us. Thirdly, another implication, concern ourselves less with the outer world circumstances of our children, what they may or may not face, and more with the inner world condition of their hearts. You know, with what he talks about, the filling of the Spirit. Verse 13, that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And if that becomes true for our kids, then just praise God. Like, that's what we pray for. That's what we want. Any questions, comments, thoughts on this second section? Well, if we keep reading in Ephesians 1, we're going to see a third big theme, and that's the infinite power of God. Verse 15, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Yeah, I think that's meant to, how do I put it, just bring so much peace, so much rest, so much security, so much, yes, standing for us as parents living in this world. You think about from the moment your child is born, what do you think, what are the greatest fears you're going to face as a parent? The moment that child comes into the world, what are you going to be afraid of? There's a lot of parents in the room. What would you worry about? Here's one. They're going to quit breathing. Yeah, that 
I can remember the times with Gabe, like just going in and just leaning over his crib going, is he still breathing? Or, or what's that? Fears of the dark, just their own fears. Yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, they invented these things called baby monitors, which you wonder, I think it was maybe better before that, where you're actually sleeping with just sound, there's sounds coming like right there in your ear. And just, you'll just end up hearing things in the middle of the night that most parents probably weren't meant to hear necessarily. And just, yeah, the fears. That's, but I think physical death is probably the biggest, most looming. What else? Have you all ever watched that movie, Lion? The, about the true story about the young man in India where he went out to work with his brother, and he was maybe just six or seven. His brother was a teenager, and his brother, he didn't know it at the time, was hit by a train and killed while he was waiting for him to come back from something. And he got on a train to go to sleep, and this train ended up taking him across India, and he ended up in some major city, like a six-year-old, just gone and grew up and wasn't, reunited like to his mom for like 20 30 years but yeah that like we watched that reason I watched that it's like okay this is not a helpful movie for us more than anything it just threw a whole world of temptation at us of oh my goodness like your kids just disappearing getting kidnapped getting lost physical injury any number of those things right and so you think about, okay, just what he means here, that he's, everything is under the power of God. That everything happens according to his design and decree. Because it's in those moments, you watch a movie like that, see things like that, and you just feel so powerless. And then the temptation, again, to just start controlling everything. And it doesn't have to be in those drastic things like death or disappearance or kidnapping. Or, it's just in the smallest things of just how are they going to turn out in life? What are they going to achieve or not achieve? Who are they going to marry? And so verse 18, the hope to which he has called you. Verse 18, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And then verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And notice how that's the same power that he used to raise Jesus from the dead. That that's the power at work in you. It's the power he used to raise Jesus from the dead. Because you think about it, how much power does that take to raise somebody from the dead? It's a lot of power. And he's like, oh, and that's the power at work in you through his spirit. And notice how Jesus Christ, who's our head, our savior, our eternal husband, now seated at the right hand of God the Father. And it says far above, verse 21, all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. And that's going to be true forever. Verse 22, all things <clears throat> under his feet. And so it's the power of God that is sufficient to bring our children from death to life, from eternal misery to eternal glory, to even raise them from the dead someday. I mean, just to think about that, that we can worry about our kids dying, but will they someday die? Absolutely. Well, who's going to raise them from the dead? Not you. Not me. And so again, we realize that's how high the stakes are. 
Not how are we going to get him or her to graduate from college. How are we going to get him or her out of the grave when it's over? Not just how are we going to get them to marry the right person and give us as many grandkids as we want. How are we going to get them reconciled to God and living forever in his presence? Again, we see, okay, this is about the infinite power of God. We trust the power of God to protect them both physically according to his will and spiritually according to his promises. Because life is full of physical dangers, right? I think there's more than we could ever imagine. And even just sometimes there's mistakes that we make as parents. You can drop, we can drop one of our kids. We can not be paying attention when they run out in the street and get hit by a car. Because we're not infinite. We're finite. We're not powerful and mighty. He is. And so there's even ways that mistakes we make or just our own weakness, our own finiteness can lead to so much trouble and pain. And what are you going to do in those moments? You can spend the rest of your life, we can spend the rest of our lives just ashamed, guilty, beating ourselves up, or trusting that God could have prevented any of it, but he didn't. That God could have given you a life without any pain or trouble. God could give your child a life without any pain or trouble, but he won't. And so again, we, this, this is why a doctrine like this, like a cornerstone in parenting that just has to be put in place because the implications into how we interact with our kids and what we do when things go wrong and who we trust in those moments. So again, a few parenting implications. I think number one, talk about the infinite power of God. Firstly, as a husband and wife, just talk about it when it comes to parenting. Help each other see the greatness of God in comparison to your own smallness. Talk about it with your kids. Help them, as best as you can, grow up seeing a world with God over it, with God in charge of it, with God powerful in it. And rather than use the power of God as a quick band-aid to mask fears or minimize pain, yet connect the power of God in practical ways to the specific troubles that your children face. Just you'll be ready. Your kids are going to be scared of all kinds of stuff. Our kids are. They're going to look around in the world and see all kinds of troubles, all kinds of dangers. And those are the moments to talk about just the power of God and the goodness of God. Like when the newscast comes through, when the storms roll into town. I mean, the things that our kids might be most afraid of. You know, I remember when uh, yeah, we were in Denton and our daughters, were, they were in g- gymnastics and a tornado hit the building they were in. And, and of course, you can't get there. You're just looking at the map. You're hearing the sirens. You're getting the messages and that, okay, this is what's going and where it's going, what it's about to hit. And the coaches and those that are there, they're like, okay, we're, and all the girls were, you know, the big pits. If you've ever been in a gymnastics place, all the foam pits. So you talk about the best place in town to be when the tornado hits. It's in a gym, a gym you know, because there's just these big pits of foam. So all the girls were just in these pits. 
But still after it, it was interesting talking some of it through because just the sound, they, they both described it, it as like a, it was like a freight train was driving through the building. And so different parts of the roof and things were ripped off. And so a lot of even the parenting work was in those weeks after. And then when different storms would come. And, and Ruth, it was a big one for her because she was in Wichita Falls. She was five or six years old when the F5 hit, like 1979 or something maybe. And, and so there, she remembers it vividly, even at young, because across the, they were basically their house in a certain direction north, all the houses were standing. Across the street, all those were gone. It was just flattened. And so she remembers the devastation it can bring. And so even in talking to them after to say, okay, not only was it, it wasn't just a scary storm, but do you realize that God Almighty controls it, is greater than it? So however powerful you think that is, he's infinitely more powerful. And so the thing that can be a source of fear and terror can actually be redirected to know fear the one who can make it with his words. And that was just a little bitty thing. Fear the one who can, yeah, move oceans, can hold stars in their place. And so what it means is every fear or trouble there might be that we face or kids face, like what I would call scale it up to the God who governs it, who's infinitely greater than it. But then that starts with us needing to believe it as parents. That's what we talked about last week, right? That one of the greatest gifts that we give to our kids is our own hearts loving God, trusting God. And so this is true here. Like we have to believe in the power of God. We have to be assured by the power of God. We have to see his hand behind it all and trust him in it. Yeah, one passage you could read as a family and with kids is Psalm 62, 9 through 12. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. What a statement. Next time, you know, they're enamored with movie stars or athletes or wealth or political powers. Just God looks at it and goes, yeah, it's a delusion. And what is a delusion? It's a hollow, false belief. And so he's looking, okay, those of low estate are but a breath. That's easier to believe, right? He's like, but those of high estate, yeah, that's a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than breath. So God's like, take every, all seven billion people on the planet, put all of them in a scale together, and to him it's lighter than breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Just that definitive statement. All earthly powers, all earthly, don't put any hope, any trust in any of it. Power belongs to God.
And that's not all he says. Then he says, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Aren't you glad he's not just powerful? But to him belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. Which is why it's so big if you're in Christ or not in Christ. Because if you're in Christ, according to whose work does God render you? Yeah, according to the work of Christ that's been imputed to you. And that's the good news of the gospel. Outside of Christ, you will be rendered according to your work, your righteousness, your ability. In Christ, you'll be rendered according to his work that's been counted to you. And then finally, the genuine comfort of God. Turn, if you would, to Romans 8. Yeah, this is a chapter that, again, there's not words like parenting or dad or mom or kids in it. But to me, I just find it, it's one of those great chapters of just comfort in the Christian life that have great application even to parenting. Because one of the, I think, tasks we have as a parent is where do you go for comfort? When you really feel the burden of parenting, where do you go for comfort? When you feel the frustrations of parenting, where do you go for comfort? When you feel the hardships of parenting, where do you go for comfort? The fears and anxieties of parenting, where do you go for comfort? The failures of parenting, where are you going to go? And so Romans 8, in essence, is going to say, go to the Lord, who is a God of comfort. The, the overall theme of chapter 8 is just the Lord's for you. He's with you. He's not going to leave or forsake you. And so the Lord will not condemn us, even in parenting. Verses 1 and 2, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so this isn't about parenting, but there's a great application to parenting. Because I find that parenting's full of failure. <laughs> it's just full of blowing it. You're going to say things you shouldn't say. You're going to fail to say things you should have said. You're going to do things you shouldn't do. You're going to fail to do the things you should have done. There's just going to be so many pits you're going to stumble into and so many rocks you're going to fall on. And the older your kids get, the more complicated all that gets. And the more confusing sometimes it gets. And so the temptation just to feel condemned based on how your kids turn out, based on how they act, based on how you act. And so it's important always to see that there's forgiveness in Christ. There's mercy in Christ. That I find parenting is, is a long road of repentance and receiving grace. And I think there is such a thing as faithful parents. I think there's such a thing as parents who are growing in wisdom. I just don't know how to define good parents. Because none of us are good. <laughs> you know? in, in Christ, yeah, there's, we are made good in him, made righteous in him. And yet every good we do, right, Every kindness we extend, every wisdom we offer to our kids, like where did it come from? 
I didn't make it up. I didn't figure it out. Even that is from God. But also the Lord is with us, even in our parenting. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So that even applies to parenting. Because parenting can feel lonely and isolating and alienating. It can feel impossible and overwhelming. And so God doesn't comfort us with, oh, don't worry, everything's going to work out the way you want. No, he comforts us with, I'm with you. The Spirit's interceding for you. The Spirit will intercede for your prayers. The Spirit will intercede when you're weak. And so, yeah, we have to ask ourselves, what are all the things I try to do to make myself feel strong as a parent? To make myself feel capable, able. Read 19 books on it. Keep charts. Again, that doesn't mean we should be lazy in parenting. This is more about, okay, where do we really depend on for strength in our weakness? Thirdly, the Lord uses all things for the good of those who love him, even in our parenting, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. A better translation is God works for good all things. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justifies. Those who he justified, he also glorified. Again, one of the things that comforts me so much in that passage is the absence of sort of mom and dad. It's just God and the person he's dealing with. And from justification to glorification, he says, I use everything for their good. And that means that we as parents are part of the everything that God will use for the good of our children. All those who have been called according to his purpose. In other words, we're not the cause, the source, the power. We're the tools. We're the instruments that God uses. But that he's the one that brings it. And this is encouraging as well because God's not just going to leave it to you and your spouse in the lives of your kids. He's going to bring friends. He's going to bring circumstances. He's going to bring teachers. He's going to bring members of the church. He's going to bring all kinds of other pieces in the salvation and sanctification of our children. And that is to his glory. So that when we get to face him, and Lord willing, our children are there, And God decides to line up, here's all the things that I use for the salvation of your kid. We realize we'll be there numbered with about a thousand other things. And he's not going to look at us and go, man, I don't know how I would have gotten him home without you. He won't say it. He might say, well done, good and faithful servant. And yeah, we had a role, we had a hand, and maybe a significant one. But I think there's something, again, comforting in he uses everything. Even the failures, even the mess-ups, even the things that don't go the way we had hoped they'd go, 
He can use that too. And the Lord will never forsake us, even in parenting. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. And realize, right, that it's our mission in life as parents to make sure our kids don't see any of that. Have you ever thought about that? Like that's part of what our goals are in parenting, right, is to make sure none of our kids see tribulation, don't see distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we were being killed all day long. We were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. There's an identity, right? There's a title for the business card. This, this is how Paul sees himself. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Do you see yourself that way in this world? Are you willing to see your children that way? If they're put in Christ, that sheep to be slaughtered. Or are we trying to make the sheep pen like so tall, so thick, so impenetrable that nothing could possibly get through? And then when the tribulation comes and the distress comes, we curse God because we think we've, he's failed us or we failed. When yet he's saying right here, no, no, I, my love is not going to separate. You know, I remember a pastor saying once that none of these things will separate us from his love, but nor will his love separate us from these things which is how we often define God's love for us, is you'll make sure none of this happens. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And how is he ever going to teach you that you're more than conquerors through him who loves you? But to expose you to these things. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's the foundation of our comfort, is that none of these things will separate us from the love of Christ. That none of these things then, for when our kids are in Christ, will separate them from the love of Christ. And that that's the comfort in our parenting. That's the hope beyond our parenting, is that God is that powerful, that good, that loving, that faithful, that able to do everything according to the counsel of his will, that we just get wrapped up as instruments, as part of that in the lives of our kids that he is orchestrating. And so it means we get to be humbled by that. We get to be sobered by it. But it also means we get to just have fun. Therefore, enjoy it. Therefore, be free in it. Therefore, speak the truth in love to our kids. Train our kids, discipline our kids, care for our kids, enjoy our kids. Live life with our kids. Because we know at the end of the day, it's this God who governs it all, who's in it all with us, that never leaves us or forsakes us. 
Any comments, questions, reflections before we wrap up? We've got a few minutes here. Yeah, Ryan. Yeah, great question. So, yeah, Ryan's just asking about, so as a father, as a mother, you feel that call to, okay, to protect our children. That's part of our responsibility. And yes, but then where does that cross the line into control? Into, no, this is just me, white knuckle, making sure nothing bad ever happens. Yeah, and if you figure out where that line is, I mean, you... I mean, let me know. We'll write a book, get famous, do something. Um, no, I think, though, what you're getting at is where we have to say, okay, Lord, please give me wisdom. Like, because I am meant to protect. But then, in what way is this spiritual? This is, according to your will, in what way is this just me and my flesh not wanting anything hard to happen? Um, and that comes down to, okay, where we send our kids for school or activities or what kinds of, how far we let them go in the neighborhood or, you know, at what point are we going, okay, based on where we live and what's going on, I mean, how far do we let them go without supervision? Who do we let them hang out with? At what age? Um, how late do we let them stay out? What do we let them watch on TV? What do we let them read in the news? What kinds of things do we let them be exposed to and experience that, okay, this, this might be hard, this might be difficult, but this isn't wrong or sinful or evil per se. And so I want them to feel this. Or they're on that, that sports team and the coach is just shouting at them. And just their style is full of criticism and, and at times insult. And do we step in and go, well, you know what, We're, you're not going to be on this team. Or we go confront the coach. Or do we go, huh, this could be helpful. Like they need to prepare for a world in which people don't talk nice to you. You need to prepare for a world in which, like what if they decide at the age of 18 they're going to go into the military? And they've never had anybody talk sharply to them? You know, they're going to be crying and sucking their thumb in their bunk like by day three. And so that would be an example of, those are things like over the years that Ruth and I have had to pray for wisdom. Okay, Lord, what's too much? What's okay? That we, we can talk them through this. We're meant to pray for them and counsel them through this, but not rescue them from this. Or really hard things at school or with friendships, where maybe there's um, kids being mean or unkind and really gauging, okay, is this a moment to step in and deliver them from this? Or is this a moment to draw near to them and encourage them in it and pray with them in it, but not snatch them out? Because, yeah, you read Scripture and you go, okay, sometimes God delivers. Other times he makes us sit right there in that fire for our good. And so to me, that takes a lot of wisdom. And it takes us sort of knowing ourselves 
Like if, if my bent is to nervously, anxiously snatch and over-rescue, like I need to be aware of that and I need to make sure my spouse knows that. Or if my tendency is to just callously, coldly, emotionally disengage and just hope it all works out, then I need to know that about myself and let my spouse know it and others know it so that if so that I'm not just entrusting things to the hands of God, really, when it's me being neglectful or disengaged. And so I think the, your question is getting at, to me, one of those hard roads to walk as a parent, um, is in what circumstances do we help them deliver them from? But then in what circumstances do we draw near to them and sit with them in? But we're like, but we're not going to get out of this. Um, and just every environment in life is going to provide those kinds of moments. You know. Well, let me pray for us. Well, Father, we just yeah, close by asking for that very wisdom that you would help us as parents who want to honor you and glorify you and love our children well to know when to draw near and rescue, when to draw near and just sit and pray and encourage and comfort and teach our kids in the midst of adversity. We pray that you would give us your wisdom in that very work. We pray that you would anchor our hearts and our lives and our parenting in these very hopes that we've talked about today, just your sovereign grace, your unfailing promises, your infinite power, and then the true and genuine comfort that comes to us through your spirit. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.